Hey everyone, just wanted to talk to you about a new project that I'm working on which is called S-Cube SmartEye. So this is an electronic quality management system software that will help you manage all your company documentation. So S-Cube SmartEye is an EQMS specialized for medical device companies. If you are fed up of your paper management system or even if you are not happy of using Google Drive, SharePoint or any other software because they are not adapted to your business, then give a try with S-Cube SmartEye. So visit scube-technologies.com. So scube-technologies.com. If you want, you can also go on the show notes of this episode and you'll find it. Thank you. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy Podcast. I am Munir Alazuzi, a medical device expert specialized on quality and regulatory affairs. My mission is to help you learn how to place a compliant medical device on the market. For that, I share with you my experience and the one of others on this podcast. Are you ready for your dose of regulation and standards today? Okay, so let the show begin. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Here is Munir Alazuzi from easymedicaldevice.com. And today we will talk about FDA registration, not the 510K as we have done many times or PMA. We'll go for the one that we call de novo. Um, if you remember, we discussed about that also with uh, Michelle Lott um, from uh, Lean Raka, uh, where we talked about the, this uh, specific way of registration. But this time we wanted to go the real route, if I can say with the real example with the company. And I have with me a Spencer Jones from Linnaeus Medical, who will be helping us to understand the journey they went through with their products through the, the Denevo process. So uh, Spencer, welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Yeah, thank you, Monir. Happy to be here. Great. Thank you for joining and thank you for uh, yeah, providing your experience and uh, teaching us a bit of all the journey that you went through, because I think yeah, it's something that maybe can, can be helpful also for people that are listening to us. But before that, maybe can we have a small introduction of yourself so, so that we have a better understanding of what you are doing and what's your maybe the products that we'll talk about in a few minutes? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Spencer Jones, I'm a registered nurse by trade uh, uh, from Fayetteville, Arkansas in the United States. Uh, about, you know, I graduated nursing school in 2013, was out working as a nurse, uh, med surge night shift, and I really experienced some problems firsthand, specifically around IV complications with, you know, peripheral IV catheters uh, used for infusions, right? And it was really out of experience, that problem that I ended up, you know, kind of creating uh, safe break vascular, which we'll talk about in a second, and then founding Lineus Medical around that. Uh, and that, that happened in 2015. Uh, that's when I left the bedside, kind of jumped into entrepreneurship, uh, started the company, and uh, uh, kind of set, set on the course for uh, where, I, where I ended up today. So, uh, um, so yeah, it's a little bit, you know, you don't commonly see registered nurses uh, that, that start medical device companies. I do know a few that are out there. Uh, but, uh, I'll just say, you know, my experience as a nurse has been incredibly valuable throughout this process. So, um, happy, happy to be here and, um, excited for this discussion. I think it's going to be a really rich discussion for your audience. Exactly. Uh, just one question maybe before to start. So, uh, did you have any experience on medical devices regulation before that or medical device before that, only, uh, apart from using them as a nurse? You know, no, not, I'd say not at all. You know, when you're, in nursing school and kind of even before nursing school in college, you know, your, your, your kind of path through university is really focused on kind of anatomy, physiology, microbiology, 
And then when you get in nursing school, you, your schedule is so full, you're not allowed to take kind of business classes, really. You don't have time for it. So really, when I was getting into this, I had, you know, not only did I not have any regulatory uh, training or experience, I didn't have any really practical business uh, experience from a kind of a business administration or management standpoint. But, you know, I was able to learn a lot of those things through uh, some accelerator programs. And these are kind of called different things. Sometimes they're accelerator programs. Sometimes, sometimes they're called incubator programs. But, you know, they, they'll select a handful of businesses, usually invest a small amount of money into each business. And uh, the, ones, uh, the ones that I did, uh, we've done a couple since the company's founding, but the real initial one was a 13-week course, uh, 13-week almost boot camp style accelerator program focused on medical devices. It was actually called Zero to 510K okay. uh, uh, and based out of Memphis, Tennessee. But all, all of that to say, that is where I really cut my teeth and learned about you know, quality management systems, the regulatory pathways, patents, clinical trials and studies, you know, business management, all of that stuff. No, but it's great because uh, when, when we ha when I had the presentation of the company before we are doing this podcast, and when mm -hmm. when, when we said that yeah, you will be doing the, the presentation, I was saying, but it has no regulatory knowledge. So how can we have a great discussion? But when we prepare the episode, I mean, you had really great regulatory knowledge. You had passed way through yeah. all this, and at the end, you were kind of oh, he knows about that. Oh, he knows about that. Oh, he knows about that. Wow, great! So I was yeah, really impressed. Yeah. So I think I think it will be really yeah, helpful for for the audience here. Yeah. So um, just maybe for a quick introduction of the product now, because we'll spend mm -hmm. some time on discussing this product. So what, I mean, what product did you invent? What, what was not yeah. available on the market that you said, I have to create that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So our primary product, one that we're, you know, we invented, took through the de novo, it's called Safe Break Vascular. Uh, so it's a first of its kind force activated separation device. And You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's the first of its kind. No, this really was the first of its kind, hence the FDA wanting us to go de novo. Uh, and I'm going to show a demo for those that are watching it on video. If you're watching it or if you're listening on audio, you got to jump over to the video, but I'll describe it in detail. So this is Safe Break Vascular. It's a little device, about 2.4 inches. And it goes in the patient's infusion line uh, in between that long IV tubing from the pump and then the patient's vascular access device, right? So there's usually the catheter and a little bit of extension tubing. So safe break just connects basically in between that extension tubing off of the catheter and that long IV tubing from the pump. So uh, whenever there's a damaging level of force on the line, right? So say a patient trips over the tubing, right? Or there's a, a patient transfer from the bed to a gurney or maybe to the wheelchair or they're toileting, whatever the cause, right? Whenever there's a damaging level of force greater than four pounds, Safe break intentionally separates, right, into two pieces. One side stays with the IV tubing from the pump. One side stays with the patient's kind of extension tubing on their, on their catheter. Uh, and so it offloads that harmful tension from the IV line to protect the IV catheter. Once it separates, those two separated ends seal on both sides. So that's going to prevent any blood loss from the patient side and also prevent medication loss from that IV tubing side. Right. And so what's that what, what's that uh, that's going to cause the infusion pump to start beeping. Right. Because it senses there's an occlusion. So that that alerts the nurse to come in and investigate. Uh, and then all you have to do is replace the two separated components with a new, uh, you know, a new fresh safe break that's sterile. Uh, and then you can get that infusion back going. And I'll note one other point too: safe break physically can't be put back together. 
So okay. once it separates, even if a patient or family member tries to put it back together, it physically can't be put back together. Um, and so that, that's the short and sweet of it. And, you know, really, uh, you know, people, you know, this, this concept has been used throughout industries. If you had an old MacBook charger, they had the magnet on them, right? Um, gas station pumps, if you leave the hose in, they've got a breakaway knuckle on the line. So if someone pulls away, there's not gas spewing everywhere. It doesn't tear up the car, right? So this concept is not really new uh, breakaway concept. It was just new for this application, right? For IV therapy. And, and final point I'll say about this, you know, whenever people hear or see this device, their mind immediately goes to, oh, people pulling their IVs out, right? You're going to prevent dislodgement, which dislodgement is kind of the full removal of the entire catheter and the dressing, et cetera. Uh, but what, you know, what we've found over the past, you know, six, seven years of doing this is that IV catheters, really, they fail for two reasons, either trauma or contamination, right? Contamination would be infection or, you know, it's, it gets occluded because blood product, right? And that fibrin, fibrinogen, those blood proteins clog the catheter, right? That's the contamination. But the trauma piece, that traumatic movement, movement of the catheter, it can cause irritation of the vein, phlebitis. It can cause infiltration, which the catheter is infusing outside of the vein, right? Or it can cause dislodgement. So really what we found is when you remove those harmful forces, you can do a lot more than uh, reduce dislodgement. You can put a dent in uh, infiltration and phlebitis as well. And that's what we saw in our pivotal uh, randomized controlled trial that we did. I think it's, it's great. I mean, when you describe it, uh, I, we are like, oh, it's logic. Why it was not invented before? <laughs> it's not something yeah. that was already existing. But yeah, I think it's really great. And uh, But as you say, it's the first of its kind. So mm -hmm. as you've said also, when you start to do this entrepreneurship, you are more in the design, say we have to do this, have to do that. And then you have this wall that is called regulatory, that is called FDA. So yeah. how do you, I mean, What was your experience going through this? I mean, since when now, uh, first, since when are you now registered within the FDA? So since when is your products now on the market and it's registered with the FDA? Yeah, yeah. So we, we officially received FDA clearance, class two de novo clearance from the FDA in May of 2021. Um, and I, I can kind of talk through a little bit of the regulatory journey if you'd like. Um, you know, we really early on, I mean, like I'm talking in the first three months of founding the company yeah. kind of attached ourselves to a really knowledgeable regulatory consulting group. Yeah. Um, uh, MRC global is the name. Uh, so, so we really, you know, cause we knew the regulatory piece of this is, is huge. Everything has to be building to that regulatory clearance, design development, customer discovery, uh, you know, getting those design inputs. And so we wanted to go 510 K Okay. You know, that was the plan all along. So we were driving towards that, you know, even though we knew that we were unique in the sense that we're the, we're the first thing that's going to intentionally separate in the line. There were other things, stopcocks, needless connectors, you know, similar place, similar, you know, flow control intended use, right? Similar materials, polycarbonate, ABS, silicone, all of that. So we thought that we were going to be able to 510K off of, off of those. And, you know, As we were going through that process with the FDA, uh, you know, pretty late in the game, late into our 510K review, they said, look, we've, we've kind of taken a new look at this and we think you're too unique uh, and we think you need to go de novo. So our original FDA submission was in April of 2018 okay. and we didn't end up getting clearance until May of 2021. So that was really like a three year kind of regulatory period. 
And for the yeah. audience that uh, are maybe listening, so for when we talk about 510K, so normally in the US, the 510K is you are trying to look at a similar product that is on the market. And when we talk about similar, it's not similar, exactly similar. The principle is similar. Yeah. So it's like uh, we talk about a car. So it's a car yeah. <laughs> or it's yeah. a truck or it's, thing, it's not like a BMW or Mercedes or whatever. It's really the, the same yeah. similarity in terms of the product. And apparently yeah. there was no similarity for your device. Yeah, you know, and, and the, the criteria for the FDA, you, you're absolutely right with, with the 510K is you have to pick devices that are a device or, you know, a device or two devices uh, that are substantially equivalent. That's the phrase, right? So substantially equivalent. Exactly. A lot of that is kind of materials and, uh, and, you know, the things that kind of how it's what it's made of. But then a big piece of that is the intended use or exactly. the indications for use, right? So even though from a material standpoint, you know, we were very, very, very similar to other things on the market, but our intended use and our indications for use were different enough that that's what really caused them because uh, to, to kind of make that shift because we had really crossed that hurdle in terms of, you know, once you submit your 510K, uh, very early on, you clear the RTA checklist. We had passed that. That's basically them saying we deem this your predicate devices as substantially equivalent. So that why that's why it was kind of a shock to us when they kind of said, you know what, we're going back on that. We're we're you're de novo. You're you're too unique. So um, so did you have? I mean, how is it working? So did you have a press submission meeting with them and discussion, or it was uh, then you you created all the five ten k sent to them and they refused? How how was it exactly this interaction with them? Yeah. So we, you know, we didn't do a pre-submission meeting and we can talk about that more later, but I, yeah. I wish we would have, um, but you know, we didn't anticipate that this would be an overly complex 510k. We thought we had a pretty high confidence level that we'd be able to get through, uh, with a pretty traditional 510k. The, you know, de novo pathway is a lot longer. Usually they require clinical data and usually it's pretty rigorous clinical data, not just safety and efficacy data. Um, but you know, and a lot of five ten Ks don't don't require clinical data. So you know, we actually did a forty patient trial, forty patients okay. getting safe break. It was not randomized or controlled or any or randomized or anything. Uh, there was no control group. It was just device group. But that was a great safety and efficacy study. We showed safety. We showed efficacy. We presented that to the FDA during our five ten K, and that you know that helped. But still, the ultimate, uh, you know, the ultimate linchpin was their determination that we needed to go de novo, which uh, ended up them asking, caused them to ask for additional clinical data. But we did not do a pre-submission. You know, we were trying to kind of race towards the quickest and easiest path, which at the time we thought was 510K. So uh, to do a, a clinical trial, so you had to involve, I mean, you had to hire a novel consultant to do that, or you are doing that by yourself? How, how did it work exactly? Yeah. So, I, I mean, for us, it really started with finding a facility and a principal investigator that were willing to do the study. You know, we sponsored the study, but we were not involved with the data collection. You know, we did partner with, uh, again, Memphis Regulatory Consult, or sorry, uh, MRC Global. Um, uh, they helped uh, kind of with the staffing. Uh, uh, you know, there, there's kind of a blend of, you know, you've got the principal investigator uh, at, at the facility, usually they have a research coordinator or two on staff to help with the data collection. And then the regulatory consultant kind of just is more looking over their shoulder to make sure that protocols are being followed. The data is complete. We're not missing anything. Adverse events are being tracked, kind of all of those little pieces. So that was really where it started. And that, you know, that, that process really, of you find the, you find the facility and the principal investigator, you develop the protocol, you work with the IRB, 
staff it, budget budget for it, and then execute. So a 40 patient, was it your decision at the beginning or it was their decision of FDA? How, how, did, it, how did this come here? Yeah, you no, know, the, the sample size selection, you know, we, you know, we did some statistical analysis. So during that protocol development, um, we did a statistical analysis to say, okay, if, if, if our primary endpoint is safety and efficacy, then what do we need to, how many samples, how many patients do we need to power the study to a statistically significant level to prove safety and efficacy? And so that, that really drove uh, the, the sample size for that study. And um, so at that point, if I can say, you started to have this first interaction with the FDA, it was failing. So you moved to not de novo, then you have to do a clinical trial, then you have to do so. What was on your mind as an entrepreneur that was doing this for the first time, if I can say, uh, what was on your mind at that point? Was, was it like, oh, I thought it would be easier or what's exactly your, your thought there? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, we, our team was really uh, discouraged, I would say, frustrated. Because you know it's a very simple device, right? It's not rocket science. It, it's it's uh, it was deemed by the IRB, uh, you know, as an insignificant or non-significant risk device, right? So we were frustrated, you know, a lot. And and along the way, you know, when you're a startup pre-clearance, pre-FDA clearance, you know, you are just burning money. You're not. You can't make money. You're just burning money. And so whenever they say, hey, you've got to go de novo now, you know, to us that means okay, this is another year, maybe year and a half of us not getting clearance, us not generating revenue. So obviously you have to make a ton of adjustments. You have to push out your sales and marketing plans, sales and marketing hires, you have to raise more capital. So it was a, it was a gut check for sure. But you know, it, it took a lot of determination to kind of get over it. And we always knew it would happen. It was just a matter of when, and we were just very anxious and ready for it to happen. Okay, so I suppose the design part was really easy in comparison to the regulatory part. Yeah, you know, the, the design and development part was was more fun. Um, okay. It was very challenging in its own right. You know, making a device that separates but then won't go back together, that's pretty difficult. Uh, making a device that separates at a certain pounds of force, but also within a tight range, right? It can't separate at an average of four pounds plus or minus three pounds, right? It had to be a tight range. So, you know, things like that were were really critical uh, kind of design and development elements. And then you get into your manufacturing where, okay, we have to ultrasonically weld this and how are we going to manufacture this in a kind of repeatable and cost efficient way? Uh, that was its own hurdle and challenge. Uh, and then boom, getting in, getting into the regulatory and the regulatory was tough. You know, it's a lot of downtime. It's a lot of waiting. You know, I, I, I use the analogy. It's like, you know, you're throwing, you, you write down your message, you put it in a bag, you throw it over the fence, uh, to the FDA and you just wait to hear back, you know, 75 days, 45 days, 90 days. And it's very slow and, um, you know, frustrating. I mean, they have a ton of, on their plate. I'm not complaining at all. It's just, it's that part of the process for a startup that likes to move fast was very frustrating. Yeah. I think, I think it's important for, for people that are listening that, uh, yeah, you have really to anticipate those kind of downtime or time where it's just waiting. So maybe you have something in parallel to do also to prepare. Mm -hmm. uh, so to not have everything lined with for, it's more about a sandwich with a lot of things that can run at the same time. So while you are yeah. waiting, there is something else that you can do. So prioritizing can be also a good thing here. Um, in terms of quality management system. So normally you have to have your design and development documentation, et cetera, but you have also to build, if I can say your quality management system. So, 
when did it happen? At, at which stage did you start to say, oh, now I have to create some procedural documentation? And uh, was it more like a paper-based solution, uh, software-based or things? So how, yeah. how the project for creation of a quality management system kicked off? Yeah, so we, you know, we knew really early on since, you know, uh, in our work with our regulatory consultant that we were going to need to implement a quality management system at some point. You know, I think we didn't fully implement a quality management system in 2000 and until until 2016. So, you know, it was in, I think, within the first year of our founding. But really, you're doing such heavy R&D at that phase um, that, you know, you're really just starting to create a design history file, right? You're, you're really that phase is more customer discovery, getting design inputs. You're not really marketing much. You're not putting out marketing documents. Uh, so really, our initial work uh, on the quality management system was, was paper-based. It was pretty limited, you know, in terms of the, the you know, the SOPs, standard operating uh, practices and procedures, the SOPs that we developed, it was paper-based. It was less marketing-based. It was more uh, uh, product development, design history file, uh, design traceability matrix, all of that kind of engineering and R&D focused quality management system work. Uh, but we didn't use a, a, an electronic. Uh, I know there's a lot of great systems out there. We just happen to not use it. Our, our regulatory consultant, they you know do a great job with their kind of paper-based, Dropbox-based system. And it, it is it is more virtual than I'm making it sound. Right? We're docu signing, we're storing in Dropbox. But it you know in terms of it being a true digital uh, QMS system, it was not an eQMS. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um- and um, so, I mean, your strategy was great because I, I know some companies when they are saying that they will start to, to build the quality management system, they focus on procedures like uh, compliance, uh, vigilance reporting or whatever, which have, makes no sense because you are the phase of design. So focus more on the yeah. design phase documentation, then you can focus on the rest later because then it will be more a priority for you to build that. But yeah, you're right. At the beginning, focus mm-hmm. more on what you are working on instead of something that you will maybe work on in three years because you will sell, yep. start selling your products in, in three years. So I think it's a good thing. And um, yeah, so um, for paper-based system, I mean, for small companies that are just starting, I think it's a, it's a good solution or a Dropbox mm-hmm. system because it's really not need to have a big thing. But yeah, as soon as you yep. grow, if I can say, and people are spread all, all, all around the world, having paper-based is a bit difficult also so <laughs> to have people signing mm-hmm. uh, documents. Yeah. But um, okay, so in terms of uh, one thing that I wanted to, to understand because you were also discussing with FDA. So it means that you mm-hmm. had some meeting with them, et cetera. So was it like um, they are here and they just say, no, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong. Or they are here to say, you should maybe better do this or you should maybe better. It was, was there really some kind of discussion, cordial discussion? Yeah. It was more about like, no, we are just here to judge what you are doing and nothing else. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say there, was, there is back and forth, right? There is back and forth. It was, you know, always kind of constructive and, um, you know, there, there really wasn't much where we were saying, we think you're wrong or them saying, you know, we think you're wrong. It's really about, you know, I'll give some examples. So, you know, during the 510K period, right, the, where we thought we were doing 510K, you know, we were, you know, presenting them with the, with the testing that was required based on our predicate devices, you know, your biocompatibility, cytotoxicity, sterilization, validation, all of those things. And so the back and forth with them at that point would be, you know, oh, hey, in this test, we, we don't like how you did your positive controls and your negative controls, right? So it was a lot of really in the minutia with different people on the review panel about, you know, this specific test or, you know, your steriliz- sterilization validation here. Can we get more documents or can we get more detail on this? 
So that was the initial kind of conversation and whatnot. And I think during that process, you know, with us, with a few specific tests, they were realizing, you know, we were almost making custom tests because we were a unique device, which that's a de novo, right? Part of a de novo is you create special controls as they're called. Those special controls are basically custom design tests that uh, can validate the requirements of this specific device. So I think during that back and forth on those individual pieces of testing, it kind of made them realize, hey, this is really more of a de novo. And then that's what caused them to kick us de novo. And then once we were de novo though, the the type of interactions change. You know, it's a different, usually I think it's within the same large agency, but it's a different division that handles de novos versus traditional 510Ks. And so when we got switched to de novo, the conversations were more like, you know, they were asking for more clinical data. Okay, what does this additional clinical data need to look like? You know, multi-site or single-site, randomized controlled trial, what's the sample size? What are our primary endpoints, secondary endpoints need to be? And so all of that, you know, around the additional clinical study data, that turned into a, a really good discussion. And we actually, and it was always cordial, but it was about, you know, them trying to understand the risks that our device posed us trying to explain the benefits and how we've, what we've done to mitigate the risk. Uh, and then us eventually getting to an agreement on the type of study, the size of the study, the endpoints, the statistical analysis, uh, and basically give us the green light to say, we're going to go pay to do this study. It is exactly what you want. So when we come back, everyone's going to be happy if we passed our primary and secondary endpoints. Great, great. So um, in terms of uh, FDA, so I think, yeah, now you pass that. I think it's uh, the, the main thing that you've made first is FDA. And uh, are you planning or maybe is it already in place uh, expansion to other countries or just FDA is mainly the, the main market here? Yeah, so we're, we're absolutely kind of in in actively in process for expanding into, into different markets. Um, you know, we're, we're working, uh, you know, as, as many people in your audience probably know the new kind of MDR regulations for, yeah. for the I mean, European took, union. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I saw you done, you know, a lot on, on that, but so we're working through that, you know, we plan on being in Europe within the next two years. Uh, we're, uh, kind of currently working on our Korean regulatory clearance. We already have a distribution agreement signed there. We're also working on our Canadian clearance with Health Canada. So we're expanding into that market. The Korean and Canada uh, market market entrance should be within the next 12 months, uh, 12 to 18 months, we think. Uh, but then also we launched our veterinary product in January of this year. Uh, you know, dogs and dogs and bulls and horses get IVs too. And guess what? They pull them out too. And they have traumatic force on the line. So we've actually done a couple clinical studies uh, in the vet space with fantastic results. So we launched that product. You know, not a big market. It's about maybe 10% of the size or smaller, 5% of the size of the U.S. Uh, you know, adult hospital market. Uh, but it's a significant market. And we're actually doing the vet product in Korea, I think, too. We're working okay. on that. So absolutely, you know, we're looking at those. Japan is another country that's kind of on that, two, you know, more two to three year uh, horizon. But, you know, this is the great thing about this product is uh, about SafeBreak is that it's ISO standard lures on the end of the device. So we don't have to change anything to sell it in Japan or Canada or China uh, or South America. All we have to do is change the packaging, translate uh, the educational documents and IFU and stuff, and then we're, they get that clearance and we're good to go. So uh, if you go to Canada plus Japan, then plus US, 
you miss just two countries, so Australia and Brazil, to have, if I can say, the, if to be part of the MDSAP program, so medical yep. device single audit program. So for those that are listening, so mainly, if you are selling those five countries, you can have a, a medical device single audit program that will help you to avoid to have multiple audits for, for your company. So I think it can be a great thing. No. Um, That's so, a great point. I'm going to look more into that. Brazil yeah. and Australia. I, for, I forgot about that. But, you know, it, it's and real quick, it's, it's interesting. Australia has a vibrant vascular access research community. They, have, they are well-funded publicly uh, with their research, and they've got a ton of great research that always comes out of Australia. So um, looking forward to getting down there, even though it's not a massive market. Yeah, but if you go for Europe, uh, Australia is mainly following what Europe is doing. Yeah. So uh, it would be also a good thing that uh, you can also go there uh, at the same time. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, now let's say that we start from zero. You know what you know, and you come back to the beginning. So what would you change, if I can say, on the way that you went now? So what, what maybe if, if a company now is on, at, at, at the beginning of their project, what would mm-hmm. you advise them to do? Because you have made maybe those mistakes and you say, do this and do that, it's preferable for you. Yeah, yeah. I'd say, you know, with respect to the regulatory, I think having a pre-submission meeting way earlier um, would have been, and, and, you know, we never had one, but having, you know, I think when we had one, I don't know, it was kind of mid-review, but um, having a pre-submission meeting earlier on would have been very, very helpful. Um, you know, we, if they would have told us during that pre-submission meeting, hey, we think you need to go de novo, and we said, okay, and just started down that path, it, you know, legitimately could have saved us 1.5 years uh, oh. or, lo- or or more, um, you know, because the, all of that time dealing with the 510K stuff, right, it would have been really truncated. And maybe it would be a year that it would have saved us, maybe not a 1.5, you know, who, who knows, but, uh, but it would have definitely been valuable and helpful. You know, we would, you know, if we would have done it early enough, we probably wouldn't have even have had to do that 40 patient trial. Maybe we could have just done, you know, the 300 patient randomized controlled trial that we ended up doing. Uh, you know, and so, and so that would have saved some money too, and some time, but I'd say that's the main, that's the main thing, the pre-submission meeting, you know, the other thing too, is, um, you know, on the indications for use, you know, I think when you're on the company side, you're really focused on, okay, if we have our endpoints of the study and we achieve those, we can say that we aid in the reduction of, you know, mechanical IV complications, right? Requiring an IV restart. And that's what the indication that we got was. We were thrilled about it. It's what we wanted. It was broad. Uh, and that was the kind of end result after our big study. But I think, like what I talked about previously, you know, the, predi- the, the predicate device substantial equivalency is heavily uh, influenced by intended use and indications for use. Yeah. So the thinking there is that if we would have kind of gone less aggressive, on what we were trying to get claims for that we may have even been able to skate through the 510k pathway. Right. Um, So, and, and, and the other piece of that too, is, you know, clinicians in the field, they don't really care about what your indications are a lot of the times. And, and, And really when I say that they don't care about what your indications are, I'm meaning, you know, they don't really care, uh, you know, they care if you're indicated for use with pediatrics or with certain, you know, compatibility stuff. But in terms of like what you say you do, they're going to look at the clinical data, right? What does your RCT say? I don't care what your IFU says as much. What's your RCT say that you do? So that was, you know, that's just some learning there. And then, you know, maybe, um, uh, maybe the last thing is, you know, and I think we did a decent job of this, but kind of thinking that it's going to take, there's a, a buddy of mine, Jordan Mickleby, I'll shout him out uh, uh, with, uh, um, with Merge Medical. 
He has a rule of pi. It's always going to take 3.14 times as long and okay. cost 3.14 times as much money as you think it will. So I think having that lens at the start would have allowed us to kind of timeline, set expectations with investors, raise the appropriate amount of capital uh, to really get us through the milestones instead of having to raise multiple times on our way to those milestones. But I, and, I, and I think we did a good job of that. Um, but I think just kind of keeping that in the back of our head at the beginning would have been better. No, but I think it's good because it, you say it's, it's like if you say that, yeah, if you have planned for 1 million, plan for 3.5 million. If you have planned for one year, plan for 3.5 years. So it's more like, yeah. I mean, you can try 1 million, but make the worst case yeah. it can be 3.5 years because of, of, of that. So I think it's also good yeah. advice maybe for, yeah. for, for the audience here. Um, in terms of um, your journey, so as I said, it, you, 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 normally when we see this kind of product, it's like it, you think, we think it's linear and it goes in one direction and it's fine and everything would be okay, but it's more like a bumper up and down. So um, what helped you, if I can say at certain point, do not say I give up here because it's a, it's a, it's a bit too much now, or uh, if I didn't yeah. have that to be maybe a, a, a problem for me on, on my journey. So because, yeah, we have people that are at the first if I can say bump, think, oh, it's to never work. Mm -hmm. But in reality, we have just to think that the, pro the project is not linear. It will be a lot of hikes and downs. So it's, it's mainly something that can be a big run. So what helped you, if I can say, during this journey? Yeah, you know, specifically on the regulatory piece, I think having a really, uh, you know, good, skilled uh, kind of regulatory consultant or regulatory firm that you trust uh, and, that, uh, and that helps you a lot. And then I'd say kind of, as an addendum or a bolt-on to that, you know, what was really helpful for us too is having, um, you know, regulatory consultants or kind of key consultants that specialize in certain things. Like maybe it's someone that worked at the FDA for six years. Yeah. We have a statistical analysis consultant. All they do is statistical analysis, right? Um, you know, and so it, it maybe a sterilization validation expert. So having those really, really niche specific consultants and clinical experts was really key. I'd also say, uh, the human interaction piece, like ask for an in-person meeting or try to, you know, when you're having those interactions, the human interaction and kind of the in-person meeting we had was great. We showed them that we're an honest company. We're honest brokers. We're coming to you in good faith and working in good faith. We want to keep patients safe. We just want to speak clearly about the risks and benefits. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that goes a long way because some of what the FDA does is subjective and knowing they're working with quality, honest people uh, is a really important piece. You know, never get adversarial, never get angry. It's you, you really have to understand that they've got a big job to keep people safe. And so never get cross with them if you can, uh, if you can, uh, if you can help it. But I'd say those are the big things that, you know, helped me along the way on this journey. No, I think it's great. So thank you. I mean, your journey looks amazing now that we see it and we hear it. But I imagine that during that time, it was really a, sometimes maybe a nightmare. So for people that are listening, yeah, learn from this, learn from this kind of journey so that you can maybe not make the same mistake. Here we talk about a specific product, but it's the same for any other product. So go uh, through the same pathway that, uh, that Spencer has talked about. And I hope yeah, it will be really helping you. So uh, Spencer, where, pe where people can follow up with you if they want to see again your product? Because as we said, uh, we you showed that on the video, so maybe they want to yeah. see that maybe on the website. So do you have a website or something where people can go? Yeah, absolutely. So our website's uh, www.lineusmed.com. That's L-I-N-E-U-S-M-E-D.com. Uh, so you've got, there's tons of videos, pictures of, of the device, and you can get access to the clinical study data, all that good stuff. We're also on LinkedIn. 
Uh, Linnaeus Medical, again, is the name. You can find me on there. We've only got, I think, what, nine employees at this point. So <laughs> there's not a whole Rolodex of a, of a directory to go through. And then we're going to be at uh, the Association for Vascular Access Conference in Minneapolis. It's at the end of September. Uh, so we're going to be there. That's our big show for the year. If you're there, please come by the booth and grab us. But feel free to reach out uh, at, uh, at our email address, info at lineasmed.com and uh, we'll uh, happy to help any way I can on, on your journey in the audience. So Yeah, so don't hesitate to go on LinkedIn and just uh, say hello to him uh, on the uh, on LinkedIn by chat just to to say that you saw maybe his episode yeah. and yeah, you are really happy of what he, what he was doing. So great. So um, great. So anyway, everything will be on the show notes so uh, people can go mm -hmm. directly there. Uh, if you want to go to see the website, see the, 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 the journey and see also um, how to contact Spencer uh, with his, uh, his details. Okay, Spencer, it was really a pleasure to have you on the, on the episode. Uh, I hope really what you have shared with us will help uh, uh, the others. And uh, yeah, I, I hope uh, you will be also having a lot of success with the other regions because as you talked about <laughs> Europe, Korea, etc. So these are all yeah. different regulations. So you will have to go also through this kind of, of burden, if I can say, with other regulations. But we can talk about yes. that maybe on another episode if, if you come back again. For sure. For sure, Munir, and thank you for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. It's fun to get to kind of nerd out on the regulatory side of things. So really appreciate it. I hope the audience enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I, I, I tried to be as informative as possible and hopefully it helps someone, but uh, happy to happy to reach out to any of the, anyone in the audience or happy to follow up with any in the audience that uh, uh, would like to get in contact with me. But thanks you, thank you again for having me on the podcast. Mark. No problem. Thank you. To, thanks to you. And I wish you a nice day. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening. So if you like this episode, please provide a review on the platform where you are listening to it. And also don't forget to share it with your colleagues. Thank you very much. 